0: Real life superpowers, and they were 98% of our revenue, which was another interesting learning. Don't have a single customer doing 98% of your revenue. Learn that lesson the hard way. Yeah, somehow you always have that, that level of risk, whether it's a single traffic source, uh, it's a single platform, uh, mobile platform that you are relying on, it's a single customer. You always have to think how do the risk is being. Hello.
1: In this episode, we speak with Massimo Ceruzzi. He's the GM and co-founder at Ad Espresso, which is a tool for SMBs to manage, analyze, and optimize Facebook ads, and which was acquired by Hootsuite in 2017. He's a multi-hyphen dude. He's been a radio speaker, journalist, developer, marketer, entrepreneur, and angel investor. At 14 years old, he was the youngest Italian guy indicted in cybercrime for running a pirate BBS and making countless intercontinental calls with his modem to avoid paying the bills through boxing. He later founded Creative Web, the leading web development agency in Italy, and biggest provider in Europe for eBay and other companies. He founded that espresso after getting fed up with Facebook ad scaling and optimizing solutions in the early days of AdEspresso, Massimo hope scaled the blog from zero to 700,000 visits per month and build a profitable business with just inbound marketing and zero people on sales making AdEspresso the most used Facebook ads product worldwide
0: real life
1: superpowers Superpowers. Welcome to Real Life Superpowers.
0: Thank you. Where are you these days? I'm in Milan. And actually, you know, with COVID, I've been here for the last uh, four months. Actually, here in my home. Uh, but overall, yeah, I spent four years in San Francisco and now, but then I moved back to Milan. I, I enjoy the most living here. Yes, I, I agree. I love Milan as well. Where are you based? In Tel Aviv, Israel. I've never been there, but everyone tells me it's an amazing place. I hear a lot of people that want to move there from Milan. Yeah?
1: Well, these days they probably do more than any (laughs) time. Yeah, but I've been
0: hearing that for a very long time. Okay. Beautiful, better weather, very active startup ecosystem, probably way more active than Milan. uh, I I should come visit one day. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll have uh,
1: some... uh... Some interview in a studio nice so like, you have a pretty
0: wild story kinda I mean it's uh it's a nice story, but overall, I think it's very similar to everyone that did this journey and uh, and was successful at it
1: yeah okay I mean that's that's a modest way of putting it, but like i i I feel like we should probably maybe like zoom out and sort of start from the beginning because you were you started very young like so you you yeah. Picked- had an an entrepreneurial spirit from as as a child right like how does it start like did your
0: parents were your parents entrepreneurs? No, my parents were not entrepreneurs, actually. My father was a doctor and my mother was a teacher uh but actually I was more uh more of a nerd uh, than an entrepreneur, so I started uh, working with computers when I was eight year old uh, uh, by 14 year old, I was like the youngest indicted in Italy for cyber crimes. So like uh, BBS with pirated software, ATT calling card to make intercontinental calls for free, and, uh, and it all started from there. And
1: uh, we're not gonna skip over that story. So you were 14 and you were indicted for cyber crimes. Like, how did that go down
0: at home? i uh, was kind of okay. I think my mother kind of wanted to kill me. My father has always been pretty British plumb in this situation, <laughs> luckily. But it turned out fine. I mean, I was underage and it was like the first big case, uh, like big crackdown against Tucker. So there it, it were really no legislation. So it they didn't do anything. I just had my, all my computer size for a bunch of years. I, I mean, it was uh, it was okay. I was just using computer school uh, school's computer to to do my stuff uh, instead of at home. But it was uh, it was fine. In the end, it was just a slack on the ends.
1: And like, were you sort of famous, uh, notorious, in, uh, in Italy, like all across the newspapers, the fourteen-year-old hacker?
0: No, no, no. It was they didn't release the name, so it was fine. I mean, there was a, a lot of publicity on the on this crackdown, but back then it was like 1994. It was not even mainstream. People didn't know what we were talking about, so it didn't get a lot of publicity or public eye scrutiny. It was fairly under the radar, luckily.
1: And so this didn't sort of uh, set you
0: back or scare you or anyway, You just kept going. No, actually, I kept going. And back when I was 14, it was really just pirate software. Then when I grew older, I got involved in the <clears throat> hacker scene, doing kind of more illegal stuff. But luckily, I didn't get caught the second time around. And uh and then I, when I was 18, uh, I I just moved to Milan to do the university, but you know, it was 2000, there was like the dot-com bubble, seemed like everyone was getting rich, uh, and accidentally I started being working as a journalist, uh, as a tech journalist, which was a lot of fun, like a lot of like free trips, free travel, companies had a lot of money to waste back then, and I was following a bunch of like big blog. They were not called blogs back back then, but like a couple of big portals uh, in uh, nerd news uh, in US, which I liked. They wanted to to build one in Italy, and that's where it started. I mean, I I started asking around. I just wanted some pre-hosting because I couldn't afford one. Uh, and people back then were just crazy, like, no, okay, let's raise a million uh, euro and make this the next big thing. But I was 18, I didn't feel like raising money or uh, doing things with someone else's money. So I just started my small web agency firm, which started to, to build before this portal, which we built. Up, but we quickly realized that, It was a bubble. Everyone was exchanging services, (laughs) advertising, but no one was powering money in it. So to, to pay the bill, we started working as a web agency. And I really had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I had no experience, no idea how to run the company. Probably for four years, I was paying payroll out of credit card because we didn't have money in the bank. Uh, But then slowly it started picking up. We started working with a bank, which was a lot of money. Completely accidentally, we started working with eBay. And we became the biggest service provider of eBay in Europe, basically.
1: You were a student?
0: No, I dropped off university fairly quickly. When I was 20, I dropped off university to pursue the web agency.
1: What did you go to study?
0: Economy, which I was not really passionate about. But here in Italy, engineering had the first couple of years, which were standard for everyone. So there was like a lot of math, physics, chemistry, and this kind of stuff. And I was never good at studying stuff that I didn't care about. So I knew that I would have never make it in engineering, while in economy, I could just like... Uh, talk, invent stuff, uh, and uh, get out of most of the exa- exams. So it was uh, a safer bet. But still, after a couple of years, it got boring. I was working as a journalist. I had the agency, and uh, I just dropped off at, at some point.
2: I, I'm interested in studying because there's two things that you're also like the journalist, but also you did something at the age of 14, And there's something in the entrepreneur that uh, was spoken. It's called subjective justice, (laughs) which means that to disrupt the market or to do something as an entrepreneur, you know, the economics is if you're making money, you're actually taking it for someone else. Or if you're doing something bad, you also know how to do something good. And it's the way you put on the glasses, you know, like the glasses, how you see what is right and wrong. And you actually choose for other people, like the example of your 14 year old, which is inspirational in one sense. And in the other sense, it has like, you know, it's, it's a no. And now if you ask me objectively as an entrepreneur, I'd say, and this is what's interesting, you have a dad that's a doctor, and he said, amazing, you hacked the system and disrupted it. You have a mom that's a teacher that says, okay, but you're not allowed to do that, right? Which I understand. But this is, again, this is something an entrepreneur has to do every day because if you want to win in the competition, you have to find – different loopholes, we'll call it, hacks. So I'm interested in that kind of thought because I'm sure as an adult today, you can see something in different perspectives, but at the same time, I'm I'm sure, and I'm saying this about myself as well, right? (laughs) I regret the way it did it. Um, So like, what do you think about the concept as an entrepreneur?
0: I think the concept makes a lot of sense. When I was 14 years old, probably I was not introspecting or thinking about it uh, with that lens. It was just, I want free games and I don't care. It's not even, you know, on the piracy, software piracy side of things, I mean, I think a, a lot of, very often, it falls into bucket. It's not that people want to do illegal things. People just want to do some things. And uh, if it's not possible, they will just not care about. And back then, it was not even about like not paying for the games. It was more about these games are in the U.S. and I don't have access to them, so I'll just download them. Or later on, I want access to the Internet, but there is no Internet in Italy, so I'll just use calling AT&T, calling card. Uh, And this happens over and over again. I mean, even in more recent years, if you think about it, a lot of people were pirating movies. That was kind of a big thing, like Napster, etc. But it was just getting access to what you want. I mean, I didn't care about paying $5, $10 for a movie. It was just not possible then. Then Spotify, Apple Music, Netflix arrived. And... That's it. I, I I don't know because I'm no longer involved in it, but I don't think, I, I think the, the piracy market for movies, music, really shrinks because it's a pain in the ass to find the torrent, to download it, to move the files, to catalog them, et cetera. If you can pay $5 per month to just get access to all of it without the hassle of looking for them, uh, that's just fine. And <clears throat> I think that applies to everything. When you're building a business, uh, most of the time you are solving your own problem. So as you are building it, your, pro- at least for me, I was not even thinking about uh, what are the rules, et cetera. I was just building a solution for myself. Uh, and from that perspective, I was not caring that much about the rules because I was not thinking at the business side of things. So I was just thinking, okay, let's do it. And no one will care if it's just for me. And then at some point, you say, okay, this could be a business. And you start thinking, uh, okay, how do I scale it? Can I do it? etc. And probably
2: yeah,
0: but the good things about startup is that when you are smaller, uh, even for some problems are perceived as huge problem, the reality is that if you are small, it's a small problem most of the time. Unless, you, unless you're doing something drastically illegal, like a, a PR scandal. I mean, it's a huge problem if you are Oracle, if you are Microsoft. But if you are a small startup, you made a mistake. Usually, you get a second try. It's not like you are gonna be dead because you may you you mismanage the uh, the record of your user when you only had ten users. So, uh, <clears throat> I mean, now probably I'm thinking it with a different, at uh, this thing with a different eye. So. Uh, I'm always trying to find solution to a problem uh, and probably in the first iteration I care more about can I solve the problem rather than what are the rules uh, but now uh, I'm much more aware of the issue that I will have as we scared etc so from the get go uh, I always try to involve legals and get a good understanding of what will be the limitation, what would be the <clears throat> the problem as we skated. But yeah, uh, I totally agree. I mean, it's uh, also not from a legal point, but what Steve Jobs was doing with Apple, he, he just wanted something and he didn't care about, uh, probably not legal limitation, more like product technology limitation and he wanted to achieve it. And that's probably, yeah, what drive most entrepreneurs. Yeah,
2: I'll tell you differently. I think that if that experience gave you the guts now solving things that are, you know, that you want to solve and you're not, but it gave you the guts because you understand that, you know, it's a little more baby. And I'm saying this in a very good way. Again, I'm I'm with you here, right? I'm you know, I can I can say that out transparently. You cannot like I couldn't see a way to succeed if you're trying to solve problems because all of the rules are against those problems, and you need to be, I'll say this, either a little bit stupid, okay, and not know everything you know or innocent, which is great and playful, okay? And less regulated. And if it's totally regulated, you have no freedom, okay? And then it's gonna be hard to do that. So there, there it, it's like, it, and that's why I'm saying on the entrepreneur side, this is something that really interested in you. So now, if you have kids, would you tell them, listen, uh, where on the scale is the justice because, It's just between it because you want them to be playful. You want them to, but you don't want them to, you know, there's a difference. One entrepreneur always told me, listen, I do not lie. I exaggerate. Okay. And now that's the difference. Okay. So, so, you know, he could, he could say, listen, you said users, right? So I have a hundreds and thousands of users but he had more like 202000 and 2,000, and he had made the feeling that he had 700. Of course. Now, that's why I'm saying it's like there because there's no lie there, right? But there is that, and that's exactly the bendy point. And then you want to give the person, you know, now you want to inspire your kids as an entrepreneur. You want them to be really successful. What do you say?
0: Sure. Now that makes total sense. I mean, I think the exaggeration is something that no one admits, but it's part of every startup life. Because when you're small, especially if you work on the enterprise space, you need some kind of validation, social proof, otherwise the big enterprises won't pick you. And you bend a bit the perception of reality, whether it's hundreds of thousands of users, while it's 100,001. And the big ones don't? Yeah, Or what's the concept of user? Is someone that is using the product? Is everyone that ever left me an email and started a trial over the last 10 years? That's something that everyone does. And you you need to be smart about it because sometimes you just look stupid. You can see the startups that are like two two weeks in the product and they boost uh, hundreds of thousands of users, which is not realistic. But otherwise, I think it's uh, everyone does it. And I think the users are also smart enough to know that all like those big company logos in their own page are probably people that tried the product for a week, dropped off. But still, they are in the database. So you have Microsoft as a customer in your own page.
1: I think it's also like a question of a sort of legal philosophy and sort of personal boundaries and that, that are pretty much subjective and that a company or, or a startup is probably a group of people that hopefully are aligned around the same values. So you sort of set your own boundaries and you see what makes sense to you. Like from a different example, I would say like when you study law, I studied law, and they talk about like legal philosophy. So, you know, if you're in the middle of nowhere and there is a red light, do you still do you cross it or do you wait because that's the law? And I think uh, 100% of entrepreneurs that you ask will answer the same, right?
2: No, nope, i tell you No, are not going to pass? No, I'll tell you why, because this is my feeling, okay? Most entrepreneurs that I meet, they're a lot more, uh, we'll call them geeky and safe. Like the most of the successful ones aren't gamblers, okay? Aren't gamblers. No, they're not gamblers. Right. But what they do is, okay, they bend. And this is, this is a problem what I'm saying, because bending subjectively in law, it's binary, right? It's bad and you're evil, okay? So what I'm saying is it depends on the perspective but they bend that. So I'm going to talk about the same thing you said, but it's a yellow light. If it's a yellow light and it can be perceived as red or green. Now the, the, the optimist which he is an optimist because he said, I solve problems. My problem is I'm in a rush. I have to get to a meeting. It's yellow. I can do it. Okay. If it's a full stop red. And that's why he said, when I was solving a problem, in my opinion, he said a 14 year old. Okay. I was just trying to, but again, it's a yellow light, right? If they would have said to you, listen, this is illegal. You're going to jail. It's, it's not like that. That was like the, the incentive. It's a yellow light.
1: But that's also philosophy because that red light, what does it mean? Where nobody can see you passing and nobody can get hurt. So, so
2: do, we, do you know all this information? Forward? Yes. I know I can. <laughs> it can That's and what is I'm it. saying. Is it, is it, yes, of course. No, but,
1: but you know, if you're... By the way, sorry, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm like, I'm like, you now. yes,
1: but would
0: you
2: pass?
1: I mean, if you know that you, there's a red light, middle of nowhere, you know that you can I would totally pass. Totally pass. And I think 100% of entrepreneurs would, and I think people who are more conservative are just going to stand there, even if it's going to be a day. And they're just going to call somebody and say, I think there could be a problem. I'm
0: stuck here. I've been sleeping. At Not
2: a... that in the drivers in Italy.
0: Yeah, it's also probably a cultural thing. I mean, in Italy, everyone would pass, but also in Italy, we don't even have a word for like jail walking. It's just, I mean, if there are no cars and the light is red, I will just walk the street. But when I tried to do it in Mountain View, where there were probably like five cars per hour on the street, and still when I jail walked, even if it was completely safe, like people were freaking out, like a car two kilometers away from me just like stop in the middle of the street because, oh my God, someone is just walking over there. What's happening? They are not following the process. So it's probably very tied to the culture of each country as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. So circling back to that company, website building company. So you
0: identify, you're, you're a student, you dropped
1: out, you identify a need to build websites, correct? Yeah. And then you go
0: for it. We yeah, I go for it like three, four years, pretty shitty, no idea what we were doing, barely breaking even. Uh and then the bank arrived, which was a big booster in terms of revenue and like learning experience, but still, you know, quite boring, uh, basically consultancy job not scaling very well. Then Bay arrived, and that was a big change. We moved, we, we from like three people to eleven people.
1: What do you mean? They didn't just, you know, knock on your door one day, like?
0: Kind of yes. I had a blog uh, about PHP, and they were looking for a PHP for a PHP agency. So they just sent me an email. I I thought it was a joke actually, <laughs> and I kind of replied like, "Yeah, we do PHP. Are you really big? And they were. And we started with like a stupid project, which was, people nowadays won't remember about it, but back then there was DIG, which was a very, it was like Reddit today. It was the homepage of the world and people would just post every kind of article and if you hit the the homepage, you will get hundreds of thousands of visitors in a day. And with eBay, we built basically a, a DIG clone to, to publish the craziest things that were on sale on eBay. And we did it in Italy. It was a huge success. Then we sold it to eBay Australia, US, etc. What did you sell? Uh, this uh, this clone. So initially it was implemented just in eBay Italy, and then we sold it to eBay across the world. And from that perspective, it was kind of eBay bending the rules because they had this huge like development team uh, in the uh, U.S., which was huge, following all the best practice, but also quite slow. And eBay had given uh, local countries like the permission to make small local projects, but we were way faster than their team in the United States. So they were bending the rule, and under this umbrella of small local projects, we started building huge projects. So we built uh, a full real estate vertical for eBay here in Italy, which was actually a section of eBay. And it was really, yeah, they were really bending the rules. They had very smart people here in Italy. And when we sold the real estate to eBay friends. It was really a fun period because in Italy, you didn't get to work with such smart customers that were really that, like doing user testing, grabbing people on the street, bringing them upstairs just to test the products, click testing buttons, etc. We were developers. We were not business people, so we were having a lot of fun. And then suddenly eBay changed CEO. And the new CEO was really, what is Europe? Why do we have people working in Europe? When was this? What year? It was probably... I don't remember exactly, it was when Meg Whitman left, Uh, I think we were around 2008, between 2008 and 2010 ballpark. And they were 98% of our revenue, which was another interesting learning. Don't have a single customer doing 98% of your revenue. Learn that lesson the hard way. Yeah, somehow you always have that that level of risk, whether it's a single traffic source, uh, it's a single platform, uh, mobile platform that you are relying on, it's a single customer. You always have to think how oh, do I the risk this thing? Uh, either way, when we started at Espresso, uh, everyone was telling us you have a huge risk, liability on Facebook. And we were like, yes, we do, like everyone else. Unless you are the platform yourself, one way or the other you're always relying on someone else's platform to get traffic, to get customer, and you can find some balancing, but you always have someone that is but has a disproportionate power over you.
2: Well what's what's interesting about it is it's either being with one client, but let's talk about the digital reality, it's also being one supply chain. Like like most of the users, you're going to bring them from Google or from Facebook, most of, you know, most of, 80% of the users. Exactly. You're your only clients those platforms, or it's your only supply, like how, what you learned and then what? Like what are you going to do about that?
0: You always have some level of risk. I mean, one way or the other, you can risk a bit, but you'll never get to the perfect point where you have, 20% of traffic from Facebook, 20 from Google, 20 from affiliate marketing, 20 from like branding. So you just need to live with it, be aware of it, and know what are the pros, the risks. Uh, I think overall, it's, a, it's really a matter of align, understanding what are the drivers of the people you are relying on. Uh, if you have a very good understanding of what's Google end goal, what's Facebook end goal, etc., and you are very aware of it, you still have some level of risk, but you reduce that risk a lot. So if you know that the end goal of Google is to provide the best answer to a question, you can rely on Google as long as you align with them and you are producing content that is the best answer to a question when you are doing black hat stuff, uh, you are paying for links, you are creating a huge amount of shitty content, then there you really have a risk because you have a single platform that drives you a lot of traffic and you know that you your values are not aligned. So at some point, they will come after you. That's what happened to Zinga, for example. I mean, uh, I remember a uh, the, the huge amount of like Farmville notification that you were receiving. and. I, I, I think Zynga knew that that was not aligned with Facebook's goal, which was to have a great user experience and that people enjoy Facebook. So uh, that was a huge risk, but a huge risk that <clears throat> you could see coming. But, but it, it, okay,
2: yes, but it, again, you, it's the interest to, you're saying great content that answers questions. So there's something I saw not long ago it's saying Google's going to change their whole dynamics of also becoming Google Home and asking questions to a speaker where there's only one answer, okay? And then what you're saying is non relevant, like Black Hat is non relevant. You know what I mean? Like the pivot, it means for now, which is correct, okay? But tomorrow you're going to have to change your whole strategy of content building, which we have to adapt to the new changes that they do. So it's like interests aligned, right?
0: Yeah, but that's the digital world. I mean, everything is changing constantly five years, 10 years ago, it was my space. Now my space doesn't exist. And there are, when, uh, uh, I mean, within the agency at some point, we started a side project for blogging. And back then, Facebook was a huge driver of of traffic because you could pay likes, one cent, uh, and actually likes did matter something because you had 20% organic reach. So it was like having a newsletter. But if you understand what drives your partner and you align with it, you are buying time. I mean, you're not buying, not having the issue forever, but you are buying time. Because if you are producing great content, yes, you know that Google will change. You know that over time you'll lose traffic because they'll start providing answers embedded in their results without sending people to your traffic, etc. But you are not risking a crackdown where tomorrow, hey, you broke the rules, you are delisted, your traffic goes to zero immediately. If you align with them, you'll see a decline and you'll react to it. You'll change strategy, you'll change platform, but you are buying yourself a lot of time to to fix things. While if you break the rules, if you find, if you always look for the shortcut, one, it's terribly like stressful because the shortcut changes change every day. <clears throat> and true you you are you you run a a risk which is too high. It's not high if you are an affiliate marketer living day to day but if you are building a company with a payroll with investors and responsibilities to your users to your investors to your employees, you cannot be in that risky situation and constantly go after the shortcuts it, It's a constant evolution and then i mean again, as we were discussing before on the uh, risk and breaking the rules, breaking the rules where you are getting started it's something not legal rules but general acceptable rules it It's fine because the risk for a small startup it's acceptable overall, uh, even if things go poop badly it is not the end of the world. You can still live with it and have a second chance uh, as your company get more structure get bigger the risk becomes higher and higher. Like Airbnb, when they started, they were leveraging Craigslist, doing scraping, uh, creating fake announces, etc. That's fair, even if Craigslist saw them and block them, that's fine. Those are strategies that you know are short lived but when you are getting started, can give you a terrible boost uh, at the beginning. And that, But then you have to build something that it's predictable, it's... Uh, I mean, a growth engine that will scale and it's uh, it's not a continuous source of stress because, you know, it could break uh, at any point. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, it's built on very fragile fundament.
1: It seems to me like you sort of have a mindset where you're paving a road and you keep evaluating, testing, and then choosing the next steps. Uh, and it doesn't seem to me like, Things are happening randomly. I think you're making calculated decisions, but you're just like uh, not taking them too seriously, knowing that you don't know what the outcome will be,
0: correct? Yes, of course. And then, I mean, the definition of risk and everything changes at every stage of a the company. The, the nice thing of building a startup is that everything is continuously changing. When we started at Espresso, so we were like, oh my God, our only problem is to raise money. But then we raised money and we understood that we had just created a new set of problems. How do we keep growing to keep our investors safe? So, okay, let's build a bigger product. Okay, let's build, okay, now the problem is how do we hire people? So, okay, let's give developers in Italy the same treatment we would offer developers in the U.S., which is what we did. Back then, it's, it seemed crazy. People hated us in Italy because basically we doubled the average payroll for developers here in Italy. And we gave them work from home whenever you want. We gave them bonuses for attending conferences and studying. And with this strategy in two years, we grew from five people to 50 people engineering team. And then you created a new set of problem, which is okay, now we have 50 people reporting into the CTO and the CTO wants to die. So, okay, then we have to build team. We have to build Scrum. And then you create another set of problems. Okay, now people are spending more time in meetings than they are spending building code. So it's always evolving. And uh, and that's the same with risk. I mean, if we have 100 customers, uh, I don't care about, like, Building a multivariate testing to change pricing. It's just small. Like I can take the risk, and I will just change pricing, see what happens, and roll back if it doesn't work. But nowadays we have 10,000 customers, so I need to be more careful because a small change could make a huge difference. So I need the multivariate testing. I need to make a
2: safer bet. You you are a problem solver. Like it, it sounds to me, like this is like you know an attribute that you have. And you also like it, and you like being the person who solves the problem because you're good at it, which is fine, and people approach you and say what to do, and you know how to do it. Now, I'm gonna give you a really good riddle right now that's interesting for everybody that's doing business in the world, okay? And as a a problem solver, this is something that's really, really interesting. What should you do in the digital industry right now with the biggest problem or the weirdest problem? Okay, which is the reality right now with COVID. Like, how, what would you do right now strategically? You say risk management, low risk, forget about opportunities, which I can understand. Like, how to lower the risk? What is smart to do? What would you like? What are you doing now?
0: That's a very good question. I think <clears throat> no one really has the answer. So, what you do is just you build different scenarios. It's just a reality where you have to accept you have no idea what's going to happen and you prepare for different scenarios. So what we did is just think, okay, what are the scenarios that could happen? <clears throat> a scenario is what I would say we, we kind of are right now. So it's uh, three months, four months stop and then things get better. Another scenario, which is what actually happening to a lot of startups, is that things are getting better. There was like a very bad month, which was March, and then things actually accelerated in the digital world. And then there is a third scenario, which is what I find more realistic, which is this is just the beginning, it's not the end. And actually no one has yet seen the the economical crisis that this will generate, which will only appear in November, October if there is a second phase, but even if there is no no second phase right now, government are powering a lot of money in the economy, but that will stop at some point. And there will be a crunch in, uh, people, in private people's spending, which will then create a ripple effect all across the board. So you just create scenarios and play with the numbers and say, okay, if this happens, this is how we react. We will need to shrink the team, for example. Or if this happens, it creates a huge opportunity. And actually, I'm very bad at this. I'm completely dysfunctional. So I think uh, what was the thing that made successful at Espresso was uh, me working together with Armando, my other co founder, because we are completely complementary. Like, I'm pessimistic, he's more optimistic. I'm like, Getting a lot of idea, but then hating the execution, the operational part uh, is more in like dissecting the good from bad idea from the good idea, and is totally to operation. Okay, how do we make this happen? Which I sucks. At. How, how did you meet him? Randomly in uh, in Dublin uh, at start uh, a Dublin Web Summit now just Web Summit. I was doing espresso. he was doing another startup, we met and then he joined as an advisor, then as an investor, and then uh, as a co-founder. But I think that's really the most important thing to be successful in a startup, but in everything, is just to know what your weaknesses are and be extremely aware of it. I, I hate people that are black and white, like this is the way to do it. Like I cannot, that's probably my personal thing. I cannot stand the the Basecamp Twitter feed. I mean, those guys, Jason Fried and the other co-founder, they are super smart, but they are black and white. Like this is the way you have to do it. Like remote working or product or like venture capital. They are super opinionated, which is good. And actually from a marketing standpoint, works very well in today. Environment which is all about, you know, extremizing, putting everything to the extreme, uh, like Donald Trump. I mean, it's like creating an enemy, really creating a tribe of people. It works, but the reality is that there is no single path to get to a destination. You can raise money and uh, deal with investors, you can bootstrap your company, you can have a remote team. Or you can have a super nice office and keep everything together, everyone together. There are hundreds of different ways and paths that you can uh, take to get to the same destination. There are also hundreds of different uh, definitions of success, which is extremely personal. Uh, But I think the important thing is to understand what are your your weaknesses.
1: When do you feel that you sort of started to understand yours?
0: Uh, You are constantly understanding yours. I think with the agency, I started to understand mine weaknesses, and it's a continuous process where I'm always refining it. Once you understand them, you have three options. I mean, either you improve yourself, which is something that you should always do, but I don't think you can fix your fundamental character. If you are an introvert, you can take it, but you you will still be an introvert. You can find someone else that complements you, or you can just define your path based on your strength, avoiding your uh, your weaknesses. You, you
2: knew the weaknesses, but when was the point where you felt comfortable with the weaknesses? Like, there, there's probably a point where you felt comfortable telling people and communicating that that's something that you're not, you don't want to do, and you know that they have to understand it or want to understand it or, or can't understand
0: it. It takes time, and actually I... I don't think there was a precise moment in time. I just think it's something where, you know, like if you have <clears throat> I don't know, a hearing or seeing dysfunction, the brain automatically adapts and make the other senses stronger. Or like if you have a, a AI problem, over time the brain correct uh, how it processes images and you don't realize you have it. Uh, I have no problem talking about my weaknesses, but it, it's not even something I do very often, or I have a process. I think my brain just automatically corrects the route. Like I, I'm not good at selling products, or maybe I'm good at it, but I'm I, I suck at searching customers. So what I did was okay with the agency. I'm not good. I, I I want. I'm not able to pick the phone and call random people and tell them, Hey, do you need a website? So. Automatically, I steer course and I just say, okay, there are 2,000 agencies that are doing websites. What can we do? Let's just become the best R-code developers but only focus on like huge portal, huge problem that are very dif- dif- difficult to build. And there are just five companies. So if we become the best at that, customers will come our way. They will come looking for us because they know that we have worked for banks, for eBay, for that kind of big projects. And the same happened for Adespresso. <clears throat> usually when, when when a new industry arises, like Facebook advertising, everyone goes after the enterprise because it's predictable. You hire people, you sell to the large enterprises it's usually the first entry when a market is created. but I knew that i I hate uh, building a sales team. I'm not capable of doing it. What I'm good at is writing content, ranking them on google so let's do a self-service business because that's what we know how to do extremely well. And option two is, of course, finding someone which complements you, which is meeting Armando and realizing that even if sometime we would fight, it was better to, to take the journey together.
1: So there's two lessons here, I think, or insights. I think, one, when you say you self-correct as the brain and you're given the example of, for example, if you're not seeing well, I would say that there's two ways to self-correct here and they're not internal. So one uh, is to find somebody who completes you and self-correct through that. And two is to see how you can overcome something by sort of pivoting to, an, to a strength and seeing how you can double down on the strength. Yeah. And, and I think that the third option, which you didn't mention, is actually to freeze. And not do it. And I think that's something that a lot of people might do. So I think understanding that either doubling down on a uh, strength is actually fantastic. Because you don't have to be good at everything. And actually maybe doing that double down downing is going to take you very far. Or finding somebody that completes you. Or better yet, doing both. That could actually make you a superstar. And, totally. and freezing is is. It's just so dangerous in those situations because sometimes actually not being good enough is the exact motivation to become great but in a different form.
0: Absolutely. And like and, and I think that like trying to be good at everything is I mean not to under very important or importance of continuously improving yourself. I read tons of books on like how to be a better salespeople, how to become an extrovert. It's nice, I can talk for hours about it, but didn't really work. Uh, but I think that trying to be good at everything is as risky as crazy very often. I see a lot of startups that are just obsessed with, okay, I need to be go- good at paid, I need to be good at affiliate. I'm like, yeah, but you are making a shit lot of money with organic. Why don't you double down on that and focus 80% of your energy while exploring other opportunities of course but you have one thing that is working first double down on that and grow your company while searching for other opportunities but don't say that facebook is as important as google in terms of resource allocation when google is bringing you 80 percent of traffic and it does not plateau yet when it plateaued, when you cannot bring any more traffic then of course you should allocate of your resources to finding something else. But that's what happened with Espresso with Facebook. Everyone was telling us, hey, do Google, do Twitter advertising, do all of this stuff. And we were like, we are doubling month over month with Facebook. And if we build Google right now, it will slow down the growth on Facebook for something that is totally uncertain. So we are not going to do it right now. We'll do it, but we'll do it at the right time.
1: I mean, for sure. I agree. I think that you have to focus and you have to understand where your strength is uh, and see how you can leverage. But I think like from a psychological perspective, there's some danger uh, in not doing things out of fear. So the difference between saying I have a weakness and I have to see how I compensate for it versus having a fear and not doing something for the sheer reason of being fearful. So you know, like they say that the people who are most creative are the people who have stage fright, which is like so many people like, share that fight. But people who have stage fright will find the most amazing creative ways to avoid being on stage uh, to the extent that, you know, like great ideas come out of it because sort of uh, creative alternatives result. But it's dangerous because maybe if that person sort of just faced the fear, then something good would come out of it. So you have to be very self critical and to know. Is this fear that's making me freeze? Or am I really just with facing a personal weakness that is what it is? And no matter how much I try, I'm not really going to be able to improve here. And when that's the case, then I think I should compensate, not even compensate, but I should solve it. You know, talking to you as yeah. counselor, oh, you know, it's, things are figure outable. It's just a matter of framing them and understanding what the real reason is for not doing them. And when the real reason is something that valid that just sort of gives reason to solve you can really really get to the next level of stretch stretch your ability and performance absolutely
0: yeah, I totally agree there it's not, you, you should not avoid doing things out of fear you should be open-minded and testing and then once you have tested them, realize okay, this works for me, this doesn't work, and if it doesn't work then you take one of the two free paths that we have just discussed. For example, I had a terrible stage fear because of my bad English, Italian accent, and I was just scared to have to talk in front of people. But then I did it three times, four times, I saw that actually people found the Italian accent funny, so I started making jokes on my Italian accent as soon as I jumped on stage and, uh, and then I realized that that was a skill that I could learn and that most of the time it was not just being a brilliant entertainer, which of course then can make a, a huge gap, uh, which I will never do probably, but that's fine. I don't need to be a great entertainer, but I realized that it's just a matter of practice. And if you go on stage and you have to think what I have to say next, uh, you're just, that sucks. If you have repeated your talk, uh, 100 times, it, you will just be great because you, you automatically know what to do. With Adespresso, we were running the same onboarding webinar every Wednesday. And I was doing it because I wanted to listen feedback from customers. And I think like after three years, I were, was really like sending email, drinking coffee and smoking while doing the webinar because I was just going in autopilot.
1: Yeah, and imagine if you gave up on that, if you let the fear manage you. Yeah, And it's always balanced because I, I imagine like, while thinking about ways to avoid it, maybe one way that you would think was, okay, I don't want to step on a stage, so I'm going to write a lot of content. And then you could build an empire of an inbound marketing. But maybe it's enough to say, okay, I got to work on my stage fright. I got to get up on that stage. But hey, I just thought of something creative that I should do regardless. I should also create content. You know, we always, I think it's always a matter of having that compass and understanding where you're at your best and stretching it and just not being at your comfort zone. But as you said, also knowing, okay, here's, here's a hard stop. Here's where there's a sheer weakness. There's a person who can do this much better than me and I can't let ego be in the way. I'm going to let that person
2: be there instead of me. Absolutely. And, and what would you say are superpowers? <sighs>
0: I, I don't know for sure what are my superpowers. I, I think I'm good at finding creative solutions when, when I find the problem, like workarounds. Um, I'm very good at it. Like when we started at Espresso, uh, I was like, okay, we need an English speaker, but how do we find an English speaker in Milan? Because they were not searching for a job. They were either students or people that moved for their own company. So what I did was okay. Student is the way to go. How do we get them? And I just published a, a real estate ad uh, for like, okay, we have. I, I'm uh, I want to improve my skill, and I'm renting uh, my English skill, and I'm renting an apartment for one a room for one hundred dollars, but just to an American student, and I would get a lot of people that was interested in the room, and they were all American, and I was like, I'm sorry. I gave up uh, I gave up the room uh, just yesterday. But by the way, I have a friend who's looking for a content writer here in Milan who's a native speaker. Would you be interested in it? And that's how we found uh, our first content writers in Milan. So these kind of things, I think I'm really good. Uh, and uh, I'm really good at building teams and understanding what people are great and can really shine uh, in the company. And what people are not good, which is not an absolute, not good, is they might be not good for our company culture, or uh, they might not be good yet, uh, but they may, might become good uh, later. And,
2: and, and kryptonite
0: process. I am. I suck at building processes like. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, in the core, I'm still a developer. And like most of the developer, they, it's the 80-20 rules. Like they, they like the first 80% of writing the code, which is like the, the, the part where you're really building something. But then I hate the last 20%, which takes 80% of the time, which is refining it, squashing bugs, uh, writing the documentation, and that final part. So like the process part, uh, I know I sucks at it. You you saw the time we've uh, I took to to answer your email <laughs> first time around. Uh, I get lost in too many ideas, and then it's uh, it's always very tough. I, like if it was for me, I didn't ever, mind, I would start implementing twenty different ideas and not bring down to uh any of them because I would just stop at eighty percent to pursue the next idea I had yesterday. I'm, I,
2: I have to say something. I, I found your trick, I think. I think you have, like, technology in your glasses. <laughs> explain what I mean. I think that if I would have to say, just from this conversation, what your superpower is, is there's two things that you said that I, I, I hurt. I heard like, that and I felt. One was you didn't like people telling you that there's only one way to do things. And the frustration is... Uh, that you think that there's many ways to solve a problem. And I think that those glasses that you're wearing, you put them down and what you're filtering is, you're trying to understand, like if you're looking for a person and the person's in front of me, there's two ways to look at him about what's bad in him and what's good in him, which is right for everybody. And to you said that I know how to build teams and I know how to create solutions is to take what's good and... To solve for yourself for other people and for the business where other people are looking how to say what the problem is, you're searching all the time for the solution. And I think um, I think that like when you say that, that's the same thing with processes. I don't know, I'm guessing here, but the process (laughs) is a big problem, right? So you're always then this and then this and and it it you know, those you have to take off the glasses and then you don't see as well. So (laughs) Yeah. I'm guessing that you're you're that guy. So I don't know what's pessimistic about your partner saying about you, but that's that's what you're looking at. No,
0: no, no. I, I I'm absolutely the pessimistic. I mean, when we do the scenario, I'm always the one building the pessimistic scenario. Is the one building the Then uh, for sure. I mean, deep inside, I'm an optimistic because no one that is a pessimist would probably start a company. Uh, because I mean, the risks are always higher. No, uh, not not higher, but. For sure, when we get started, it's easier to see the risk uh, than, uh, than the positive outcome, but uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, we didn't buy that.
0: Yeah, we didn't buy that. Like, I didn't. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of am. And, and then I think the other, uh, since we are, we are nearly at time, I think everyone that uh, wants to start a company should read, uh, I always recommend this book, should read, Lost and Founder by Ren Fishkin. I think that's the most realistic description of how it is to build a company. Yeah. And one thing that I find very true there is that usually when you start a company, you start the company to solve a problem, but also with a, with a dumb assumption and false assumption that you are you are going to be the CEO and you are going to do what you love, which is something that Ren's described very well in the book. Like I wanted to, okay, I want to launch this product because I want to build uh, the code or because I want to take care of marketing. And then very soon you realize that you are just the enabler and that your job is to find a way to solve problem and to enable other uh, other people to solve the problem for you. But you, 99% of the time, you are not going to do what you love and what you started the company to do.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's a fantastic book and we had a great conversation with Rand on our podcast, I think, about a year and a half ago. Rand is,
0: I think, one of the most amazing people uh, in the marketing space, the most down-to-earth, really ready to start everyone. On it. Uh, Yeah, he's really a a good person all around. Uh, I really love him.
2: Yeah, there's actually a friend in in Milan called Carlo Seda, which is my friend. And he always says to me, "brutal simplicity," right? So Rand is like brutal simplicity, and uh, yeah. yeah, that's why we like him. All
1: right, we want to be respectful of your time. We know we have to dash, so thank you so much for doing this. It was great having you on, and uh, we hope to be in touch. Thank you so much. Uh, bye bye. Stay safe. Bye.
0: bye. Real life
1: superpowers.
0: It's a bird! It's a plane Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. It's alive. Real. Live. Superpowers.